Our second reading comes to us from the first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, reading in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Listen for God's word to you. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the covenant, is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight, we remember Jesus doing something remarkable. Tonight is, of course, Maundy Thursday, which uh, the name for which comes, you may have heard from the Latin phrase mandatum novum, which means the new commandment. And it refers to the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples to love one another just as he had loved them. And when Jesus gave them that commandment, he had just finished washing their feet which was certainly a remarkable thing in that culture and remarkable still today. But Jesus did something else that night, which was just as remarkable, maybe more remarkable. And it's easy for us to pass over it without giving it much thought. I used to have a nervous tick or maybe a compulsion about Bibles. I couldn't stand to see them upside down. Have you ever looked at a Bible, I mean, on a shelf, and it's upside down, and it bugged you? It bugs me. It used to bug me a lot. I couldn't stand to see them upside down. Some people check the locks on their doors five times before they go to bed. Some people line up pencils neatly in a row on their desk. Some people can't resist popping bubble wrap. But I can't resist, or certainly I couldn't resist, turning Bibles right side up. And I'm not sure why. I have a vague memory, a very vague memory, that sometime a friend of mine told me that 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 when a Bible was upside down, it was because a Satan worshiper had put it that way. And if that memory is accurate, and it may not be, it would date from probably the time that the exorcist came out and people were all excited about the the occult. So I would have been a preteen, and so that's probably why the memory is fuzzy, but I don't know if that's where the compulsion can't, comes from. It's the, only, it's the only reason I can think of, though. And I don't know if devil worshipers actually do turn Bibles upside down, but I can tell you I turn them right side up. Today, I'm much better. Well, I said I, I, I was thinking I would say much better. I'm a little better. Um, if I see a Bible upside down, it only bothers me a little bit. Today, what I do is I try to say to myself, oh, that's neat. Somebody actually got it off the shelf. And not only that, but they were so excited by what they found in it that they immediately went off and they were distracted by the content and they forgot to put it back on the shelf right. And then I will walk over there and fix it. (laughs) I, I mentioned this compulsion because I want to help you understand how I struggle when I plan special services like tonight's and tomorrow night's. Sunday's 
are pretty much the same for months in a row. But if you're planning worship, you can focus the bulk of your effort on just a few things that you need, that, that need special attention for whatever that, whatever's going on that week. But special occasions like tonight's and tomorrow night's services are essentially a blank slate, or certainly more of a blank slate. You have to decide pretty much every detail about them. Now, don't get me wrong, Holy Week is great. It is, it is the central pillar of our faith. But it's four special services in eight days. Imagine if your church picked a different time for worship every week. Today we worshiped at 2.14 in the afternoon. Next week, let's try 10.47 a.m. That's what special services are like for me. And people who plan special, who plan worship services think a lot about this stuff. And not just people with a Bible straightening compulsion. Churches that come out of the Reformed tradition, like ours, historically debated something called the regulative principle. This debate is about how much freedom Christians have in planning worship services. The extreme position says that every element of worship must be found in Scripture, or in some cases, even in just the New Testament alone. The other extreme says you can pretty much do whatever you want so long as the Holy Spirit guides you in doing it. On the one hand, the Apostle Paul says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he tells us not to argue with other believers about what they think is right or wrong. But on the other hand, Aaron thought it would be a good idea to make a golden calf. And we know how that turned out. In church history, there are schisms about these things. Back in the 5th century, there was a schism between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the church that was east of them in what is today Iran in in Persia in that era. They were arguing, and I'm not lying, they were arguing about what word to use in their worship services to describe Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, maybe it seems to you like that that's hair-splitting by people with too much free time, but it's an example of how people who plan worship services take those gatherings very seriously. And that's what makes it so remarkable what Jesus did on this night. Because Jesus unilaterally changed the script. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist or Holy Communion, but tonight we remember it as the Last Supper. The last meal that Jesus ate with his disciples. But what kind of meal was it? Three of the New Testament biographies of Jesus present the Last Supper as a Passover cedar meal. John's account varies as it so often does, but if anything, the Passover looms even larger in John's Gospel than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Paul's account of the Last Supper doesn't tell us one way or the other, but as we'll see, the Passover meal seems to be in view here as well. The Jewish tradition of eating the Passover meal goes all the way back to Exodus. Every part of the meal is regulated and ritualized, from the menu to the conversation. The youngest male present asks four questions about how this night is different from all other nights. Why is unleavened bread eaten? Why bitter herbs? Why is the food dipped twice instead of once? Why is it eaten in a reclining position? 
over the centuries, a few changes have crept in. For example, the fourth question used to be different. It was about why the lamb had to be roasted instead of boiled or cooked some other way. But it was changed after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and the end of the sacrificial system. Today, Jews of European ancestry have different recipes for some of the items in the menu than Jews of Middle Eastern and African descent. But the outline is there in Exodus 12, and changes to the Passover meal have been few and far between. And the disciples sitting at Jesus' table that night would have grown up celebrating Passover. The men would remember the year it was their turn, and they got the chance to ask the four questions, how the night was different from all other nights. Since early childhood, they would have known every detail of the ritual. And Jesus changed the script. Jesus took the most important and memorable piece of liturgy that we can imagine, and he told them, from now on, do it differently. There's still bread and wine, but what happened to the lamb? Well, the sacrificial lamb is still here, but tonight he is the host. His sacrifice will take place tomorrow, a sacrifice so great it can be shared not just among one or two families, but every member of every family around the world and across the centuries. Tonight, there will be no blood to smear on the door frames. Tomorrow, though, there will be blood. But this blood will not simply turn away the plague of death. The blood of Jesus will overcome the world's darkness and defeat death itself. Tonight, Jesus takes the bread and wine and redefines their purpose. Bread to point to his body, broken for us, and wine for the new covenant sealed in his blood. And like the Passover, this new meal is a day to remember a perpetual ordinance, a law for all time. But now Jesus says it is to be done in remembrance, not of the Exodus, but of him, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the way Paul learned it after he became a follower of Jesus. And that's how he passed it on to the church in Corinth. As an aside, scholars tell us that the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians was written about 53 or 54 AD. And there's no serious uh, dispute about that. Skeptics as well as uh, Christian scholars uh, are in consensus. It's a legitimate letter of Paul written about that time. That's about 20 years after the resurrection. But this is not a new revelation from Paul when he writes the letter. He's reminding them of something he had taught them when he first came to their community a few years earlier. And he learned it in turn, he says, from the Lord himself, earlier still. What we do tonight goes back to the very beginning of our faith. So think about what it says about Jesus' disciples that they even participated in the Last Supper. It must have seemed bizarre, like some grotesque appropriation of this most sacred ritual. Possibly it was on their minds later that night after Jesus was arrested. We can imagine them saying, I knew he was going too far. You don't mess with Passover. There's no way God could overlook that kind of sacrilege. Think about it. What would it take for a religious leader to convince you it was okay to make that kind of changes to the deepest 
rituals of our faith. Imagine if tonight I told you that our meal was about me. Imagine if you moved to another town and somebody invited you to their church and you went to their church and they said that communion was to be celebrated in remembrance of anyone at all other than Jesus. So often, when we think of the disciples and Maundy Thursday, we remember their lack of understanding, their fear, their disbelief when Jesus was arrested. We remember Judas's treachery and Peter's denial. But we should also remember their great confidence that Jesus was so great a man of God that he could change the Passover cedar. And if we shake their head, our heads at how they abandoned Jesus a few hours later, we can also ask ourselves how deep their pain and disappointment must have been to go from such great confidence in Jesus to utter disillusionment in the span of an hour. And we should pray that we escape the time of trouble. We can better appreciate how thoroughly Jesus restored their confidence after the resurrection. Because in those first few years after he ascended to heaven, they dispersed throughout the Roman world to spread the good news about the risen Lord, and his disciples obeyed what he taught them about this meal. They passed on its new words and its new meaning. They told one another about his sacrifice and the new covenant that he established. You and I will probably never have to run for our lives. We may never have such great cause for fear and disbelief. But if we do, may we aspire to the same kind of trust in Jesus those disciples had during the meal, the night of his arrest. And may we carry out his instructions as faithfully as they did after the resurrection, as they spread this new institution around the Mediterranean world. Tonight, may we remember Jesus' sacrifice. May we have the disciples' confidence that he is truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we embrace the new covenant sealed in his blood. May we be fed at the table that he prepared for us. And may we obey the new commandment he gave us to love one another as he loved us. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, we cannot fathom what a momentous thing Jesus did to change the very Passover itself, to teach his disciples that the original Passover was pointing at the work he would do the next day on the cross. Lord, help us to appreciate what this sacrament we celebrate so regularly actually means, to understand it better and to love Jesus more because of it. We pray it in his name. Amen.